This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in fit, comfort, and ventilation. So you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Who is Otsun? More than prolific crack climbing gloves, Otsun has been making innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance since 1998. Their climbing shoe designs are all original, developed and manufactured in Czech Republic, and 100% gender neutral. Beyond their sticky rubber, Otsun is renowned for their hardware, harnesses, and the biggest, lightest crash pad on the market. Find your new favorite climbing shoes and accessories at Backcountry, Moose Jaw, Camp Saber, and Amazon. Every year, I'm amazed at how impactful storytelling can be. And we recognize that it's a vital step towards cultivating change, growth mindset, and belonging. I think that humans are instinctively drawn to storytelling too, which makes it a natural medium for making connections. As social beings, we evolve to share knowledge with community in order to increase chances of survival. And inevitably, with the need for communication, we develop language. Today, we utilize this language to share experiences, build engagement, and actively shape more inclusive spaces. If any of you are a Schitt's Creek fan, Dan Levy said in an after-series interview, When someone with opposing beliefs sits down and watches, we're showing them what life could be like. People feel safe enough to question, are my beliefs outdated? Am I being told to believe something that isn't true? Because I love this character and I want him to succeed. So why am I feeling like he shouldn't politically or religiously? And I think we all just need a safe space to learn because I never learn when I'm being taught a lesson. These words have been so profound and life-changing for me personally. And moving forward, it's less about teaching the lesson and more about expanding our knowledge of the world and showing people from all different sides how things are and how they can be. It's an open invitation for every person, every gender and background in our community to rise to the occasion because we all have a role to play in racial and gender equity and in creating a world where everyone, including men, feels safe to use their physical and emotional strength in advocating for more women, black, indigenous, and LGBTQ communities as much as we do for athletic sport. The lessons already embedded in the story 
event, sharing it with the world is a labor of love. There's always someone right now who can benefit from where you've been. And the more of us who are transparent about our journey, the more open the world can be. And that's the change. This is season five's final episode, which may or may not be two months late. But what are deadlines if not social constructs that we build to plan and schedule our lives around? And sometimes life blows the fuck up and you roll with the chaos and see where it takes you. Stay tuned for more updates and bonus episodes to come. Here's the show. Yeah, I have one friend, um, Jade. She was like a, a hotshot climber back in like the 80s and 90s. And when she was my age, like early 30s, she had a similar sort of thing. Um, it lasted for four years for, for her being bed basically, but she made a full recovery. And so her story is one that I've kind of been like clinging to. I'm like, I can fucking do it. I can get better. <laughs> yeah, with most of this, there's not like a lot of readily available hope to cling to. It's, uh, yeah, it's really grim. With ME-CFS, the symptoms and the sensation, they really aren't stuff that's part of the normal human experience. So like actually my closest experience to what ME-CFS was like before being sick was the several days after a bad concussion. Um, and so anyone who's had a bad concussion will know that you just feel horrific afterwards and it's like being really hung over or something. That's the closest thing that I can relate it to. But yeah, it's been known as chronic fatigue syndrome for many years, which is like the most bullshit thing to call such a serious condition. And yeah, fatigue isn't even really like one of the primary symptoms. It's like this full body dysfunction. You know, it'd be like if you had cancer and it was like, oh, you have not feel good syndrome. That's your diagnosis. You'd be like, what? <laughs> what is this bullshit? <laughs> um, yeah. So anyone with ME, we mostly call it ME, which stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis. It sounds a little more dignified. ME, or myalgic encephalomyelitis, is a complex, debilitating, long-term medical condition. It's also known as chronic fatigue syndrome, although alternative names to describe this condition are used globally. Patient groups have criticized the old name, stating that it trivializes the illness. It's a systemic disease associated with a neurological, autonomic, and energy metabolism dysfunction. The causes of ME-CFS are still unknown, but many individuals with the disease remain ill after an acute infection with symptoms that persist for six or more months. There's no diagnostic test or FDA-approved treatment for ME-CFS. According to the CDC, 836,000 to 2.5 million Americans are affected. At least one quarter of individuals with ME-CFS are bedbound at some point, and most never regain pre-disease level of functioning. It can strike people of all ages, racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups, and is diagnosed two to four times more often in women. Despite these staggering numbers, there's controversy within the medical community over the pathophysiology, how it should be diagnosed, and how to treat it. Many professionals still don't recognize ME-CFS as a genuine condition, as its etiology is still not fully understood. Yeah, and that's like a big insult to injury thing with this condition. You know, not only is it horrible, I mean, on the severe end, people are completely bedbound, can't talk, can't lift their arms, can't eat. You know, what does fatigue have to do with that? How does that 
how is that a relevant word? So yeah, there's a lot of insult to injury and, um, you know, you spend your entire illness in bed. You're, not, you're never seen and that's tough. I was having dinner with a friend the other night and I was kind of just talking about how things are and how I'm still nowhere near being out of the woods. And she just said very simply, that's so fucked, that's so fucked. And that was like the nicest thing anyone could say to me. I'm like, yes, yes it is, thank you, it's fucked. And uh, you know, <laughs> it's a hard thing to know how to talk to someone about stuff like this. And like, what do you say to somebody who's so debilitated by adverse life circumstances? And for me, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that knocks it out of the park. Just tell me that sounds fucking awful. That sounds like shit. I'm like, thank you. Yes, it is. Thank you. <laughs>
the much deeper levels of horror that were awaiting me, but the takeaway from that, it only lasted three days, but the takeaway was whatever was going on in my upper cervical spine was causing my illness. Because for those three days, it was in a way, you know, whatever the structural issue was, it was resolved temporarily. Yeah, basically I went to see the local spine doctors and the other little piece of the puzzle that I learned around that time was that when my head was lifted up in cervical traction, it would have a similar effect instantaneously. My symptoms would improve, sometimes drastically. And so I kind of forgot about it because I just didn't get anywhere with it. And uh, the following years, there are these stories that started emerging of ME-CFS people being treated for craniocervical instability, which is basically a um, degeneration of the joint capsule where your skull meets your spine. And so these people were having a craniocervical fusion, getting their heads bolted onto their necks, and there's some remission stories from ME-CFS. And I was reading these, and one of the main parts of the diagnosis was improvement with cervical traction. I'm like, oh my god, that's me. When my head is lifted up, I feel much, much better. It's a small, new corner of neurosurgery, and the patients who are having this procedure are pioneers. So yeah, I found one of these doctors and had lengthy chats with him and did a lot of my own research and it seemed like the best option for getting some sort of life back. Masons described ME-CFS as a high-density experience. There are no breaks or days off. There's no easy way to pass the time. And the best he could do during those years was to manage the condition enough to keep suffering at a minimum. Maybe the hardest part of this condition has been knowing that remission is not guaranteed. But in 2020, a promising treatment was on the horizon. A neurosurgery on hold due to the pandemic finally took place. Doctors lifted Mason's skull up, pulled it away from his spine, and bolted it into a position of relief. It wasn't a cure by any means, but it did spark some change. It's been a massive improvement in my quality of life. Yeah, I just had my first night of camping for the first time in over three years. It's this amazing mountain range right in the middle of Nevada. Allie's my wife, Allie, her parents lent us their little teardrop trailer. Yeah, we were giddy. It was really special. We pull into Lamoille Canyon and get to our campsite and it's kind of dark and like, ooh, it looks like it's gonna rain and get everything all set up. And sure enough, it starts raining for about an hour and it was just like, it was so joyful. Hearing the rain on the roof of the, uh, of the trailer and hanging out all comfy. I still have symptoms all day, every day. My brain fog is just it's still bad. It's not horrific, but it's always present. And so everything's kind of filtered through that. And moments of real pure joy where I forget about everything are very brief. But, you know, I still have them. Sensory sensitivity is kind of one of the bad ones. Like, my brain just can't process noise and light. Like, I have to wear glacier glasses anytime I leave the house. I'm wearing, like, really dark sunglasses. And, you know, what that basically prevents me doing is um, I can't just, like, listen to music. 
I can listen to like a song and it has to be a very deliberate sort of planned out thing. Like I'm gonna listen to this song or part of it, but I can't just like jam out to music all day. And with MECFS, the defining characteristic symptom is exertion intolerance. So doing anything, mental exertion, physical exertion, it makes all that brain fog and sensitivities and fatigue and weakness and malaise. It all just gets worse. You feel really horrible. So I still, I can't exercise. I haven't exercised since May of 2018. And so, I mean, that's fucked up. <laughs> how can you like, how can you be okay without that? With increased growth of climbing gyms and accessibility to training facilities, this would be a lot of climbers' worst nightmare. Not being able to moonboard was only a fraction of the misery and also the least of Mason's problems. It wasn't exactly like tearing a pulley and taking a few weeks off. Mason gave up essentially all forms of movement and exercise, all the while medical experts continue to debate probable cause, diagnosis, and treatment. And this isn't new. Historically, contrasting opinions have been expressed by different research, such as a 1993 Lancet paper that argued that MECFS should be classified as a psychiatric condition. A major divide still persists as to whether funding should be directed toward biomedical or psychosomatic research. There are a number of conditions that fall into the frustrating category of medically unexplained symptoms, but what they all share to varying degrees is scientific uncertainty about cause. You know, my doctor would be like, I'm not quite sure, you know, I want you to talk to the psychiatrist. It's always being directed in kind of a mental health direction which I will say emphatically is a dead end road for people with MECFS. It's, it's so obviously not a, uh, an illness that's driven by uh, psychosomatic uh, process or you know mental health stuff. It's just, that's a dead end road and it has been for many years. And actually you go back in history and the names of these diagnoses are always evolving and actually like hundreds of years ago this was known as hysteria and MECFS affects I think about 80% women and so you know medical misogyny is still a big thing and you go back in the literature and it's like oh she was hysteric like that was her thing <laughs> she's just crazy <laughs> and so we've come I don't know a long way from there, but yeah, we have a long way to go. And obviously for me, I know in my heart that I have like a structural neurological condition because what better proof can you have than, you know, three days of immediate radical remission after uh, someone cracking my neck back into place. Um, and it's likely a lot more complicated in how did my connective tissue do this, you know, there's likely genetic components and maybe environmental and there's a lot we need to learn. So I know in my heart that that's, that, you know, <laughs> I'm rambling. How often have we been caught in an awkward conversation and our natural instinct is to wriggle out of it by making a sad situation seem less sad? privilege and modern amenities, like the ability to scroll the internet from any device, acculturate society to minimize discomfort at its onset. It's not always a bad thing, as I've definitely been one to also utilize Netflix and next day shipping as a stand-in coping mechanism. Time and a place, right? 
But the thing about discomfort is that when used as a signal to hold space for tense, heavy conversations that we don't really want to have, it can designate a path for knowledge, awareness, and growth, especially in the realm of empathy. I think with my friend saying that, what she did in that moment was she allowed herself to be uncomfortable and be with the fact that it's a shitty situation and people don't want to be uncomfortable and it's hard to be uncomfortable and... But that's all you can do for someone, I think, in that sort of position, is you can kind of just let that truth wash over you. And, you know, <laughs> at this point, I love talking about dark shit. Like, that's the only conversations I want to have. I want to get down deep to the intense stuff. You know, I want to feel all that. I'm like, I can't really show up and be present for small talk like I used to. For me to, like, get engaged, we got to, like, get into, like, the good shit. And that's a big part of coping with my situation is at, you know, many points throughout every day, my head will get to this place where it's like, how can I go on? How can I keep doing this? And now I've gotten so good at my little dance that I do, you know, I get to that point and I remember to just kind of let it be and let it go and get back to whatever day I have and kind of being with my own discomfort. Early in my illness, I was a fucking wreck. I mean, I was just flailing, arms and legs flailing all the way down to rock bottom or, you know, somewhere close to rock bottom. <laughs> and I mean, rock bottom for me was the periods that were completely devoid of any hope. Um, where I, I would just kind of lose that. I know I'm going to be okay even if it's years in the future or whatever, but you know, the times when I lose that and it's just completely hopeless and my symptoms are so severe that I can hardly even think and, and really just don't even want to exist anymore. To me, that's like, that's the real kind of the depth of my suffering when suffering physically, but also knowing that this might not end. I get I get triggered when people talk about like, oh yeah, we did climb this big wall and we suffered up there. I'm like, that's not suffering. That's type two fun. It has fun in, in the phrase. It's fun, damn it. <laughs> it's like you, you could bail or you could get to the top and it's over. Um, and that's why climbing, you know, you could never have the intensity of experiences you could with prolonged circumstances like being sick. I talk shit about climbing now. I'm like old and washed up and I don't climb anymore. So oh yeah, when I did that, I, we didn't need no bolts or... <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of gone away and then come back and more recently to valuing climbing. You know, it is valuable and I have my community because of climbing and I'd be fucked without my community. That's why I'm alive and you know, why I get up in the morning. I mean, I'm still a climber. Even if I never climb again, I'll still feel like a climber. Yeah, I mean, I got to live, you know, all my climbing dreams that I wanted, that I could have ever dreamed. And so for a climbing career to end where mine did, you know, that was like such a small thing to lose compared to everything else. Climbing felt very important back then. And I resented that for a while. I'm like, how could I have taken it so seriously now that, 
you know, I'm suffering and I know about all these millions of other people suffering with this condition. Like, how could something like climbing have felt so important, so stupid? And kind of realize that that's, you know, yes, it isn't important, like developing a cure for a condition that ruins lives, but yeah, it is important and it's a nice thing to do. It's a really nice thing to do and I think climbers are a really great group of people and um, as a community I feel like we're pretty damn mindful. I think that's something to be proud of. Sitting in the shit with these big, often ugly emotions and not rushing to fix it or numb it all down takes a lot of courage. And we can read all the books, consult every psychic and guru and mentor or master. But by and large, what we learn on the proverbial other side of things is that these natural catalysts for change are what actually leave more room for healing and discovery. Yeah, something I was just thinking about this morning was like, I wish for everybody to go a little bit deeper into the human experience and have a little bit more empathy for other people. And I think that's going to be crucial for the survival of our species to care about other people. This really isn't a climbing podcast, is it? <laughs> I think you told me that. You're like, it's not really a climbing podcast. I'm like, all right, that sounds cool. <laughs>
but yeah the way that happens is like basically your entire body your organs shut down and yeah i can still eat i don't have feeding you know severe me people will have feeding tubes a lot of times you know i'm nowhere near that i mean i think the suicide rates with people with me cfs are just like in the stratosphere it's horrific and i mean for myself i could have never imagined that i would ever feel even close to suicidal and that this illness has brought me there on you know a number of occasions um yeah I, you know it's it's uh yeah to not to not want to live anymore you know that's such a painful place to be um awful yeah for me you know i have such incredible support you know with ali and my parents during my more severe years you know they were living with us at times and uh the other thing worth mentioning is you know as much shit as we talk about social media it's really a blessing for people that are homebound and have these invisible illnesses it's been a blessing for me to you know, it's a weak, flimsy connection, but you know, I've kind of been able to maintain certain friendships um, and I've been thankful for that. It can take years to diagnose an invisible illness as far too many folks already know that finding that trifecta in a physician is sort of like finding a needle in a haystack. If you're a part of this community, you may have heard of the spoon theory, originally coined in 2003 by a woman living with lupus, Christine Miserandino. This visual theory is a metaphor for describing the amount of physical or mental energy that a person has available throughout their day. Initially used within autoimmune and chronic illness communities, more commonly used to describe a wide range of physical disabilities, mental health issues, neurodivergent communities, and forms of marginalization. So. We all start the day with the same number of spoons. And each task, such as going to work, running an errand, or having coffee with a friend, depletes that inventory. Most healthy individuals have more spoons than they need to get through any given day. But for those who have a limited number, they have to use them more intentionally because once they're gone, they're gone. That's the impact of invisible illness. There are only so many spoons to spare. On those days, folks experience a separation of what they want to do from what they can do. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think that terrible adverse circumstances don't necessarily make us better people. Um, it, I think it has for me, and I think, you know, that has a lot to do with my privilege that, you know, everything else in my life is really great. I'm financially secure. I live in a nice house. I'm married to an amazing woman. I have amazing family, amazing friends. I mean, I literally have it all, except for the health part. Um, so that was really kind of um, a good place to be able to do a lot of growth, personal growth. Yeah, for me, I mean, a part of my coping mechanism with this is like just being completely honest about every feeling that comes up. And, I, you know, I kind of hate the word vulnerable, but I guess it's appropriate, um, learning to be vulnerable. And that way nothing sort of catches you out of, you don't get a left hook out of, out of nowhere that surprises you. We're gonna take a short break. We'll be back. Pat 
Patagonia introduces its newest podcast, Patagonia Stories. In each episode, they'll explore how we gather knowledge and ask questions about our relationship to each other and the natural world. It was just like one of those cartoons where the light bulb goes off. I thought, oh my God, plants aren't just takers, they're also givers. Humans have gotten it wrong so many times. You know, why should we assume that we're getting it right this time? I was sentenced to life with the possibility of both. I used to look outside and I would see all of the birds line up in the morning. And that almost kind of became a ritual for me, some kind of way to feel the harmony of nature and the flow. Something that's often thrown around as a cliche in the climbing world is you have the other person's life in your hands. It's not really what you're thinking about most of the time, but you definitely have someone's well-being in your hands. Questions like, how do lessons get passed down through generations? What barriers prevent us from acquiring natural wisdom? And how can we adapt in the face of a rapidly changing climate? Tune in for a new episode every Thursday. That's wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you there. Doesn't this music just scream quintessential podcast ad? I love it. You know, for the most part, I'm still mostly in survival mode and I don't quite have enough function that I'm really able to just be like, yeah, what do I want to do? There's no gaps in my day-to-day -day that I can fill up with stuff quite yet. And very slowly, as I've been recovering this past year, you know, I'm playing more music. Um, I started fucking around on GarageBand again. Little things like that that I literally couldn't do um, for years. And I've, I've now... In the past seven months that I've been able to leave the house more, I've actually gone up with Allie and friends to only bouldering, but like hang, just hanging out at the boulders and seeing the holds and feeling the rock and even chalking up, just like feeling start holds. And I'm like, God, I miss this. Climbing is so good. All I want to do is boulder and explore. Those are like, were my two favorite things in climbing, bouldering and uh, kind of putting that focus, you know, to doing a first ascent. But yeah, in terms of other like life goals, I mean, if I make a full recovery, I think a lot of my energy will go into advocacy work for chronic illness. Um, you know, I joke about starting the Earl Foundation, <laughs> which is like me making a joke on the Honnold Foundation. <laughs> but I think that's really cool that, that Alex does that. And I think that's a worthy cause. And I think more people should be doing that with their time and energy and and resources and money. I don't really know what that's gonna look like, but, um... <laughs> oh, and actually, I wanna show you this. <laughs> so, uh... Um, Did you make this? Yeah, in like the first two months of my illness, I didn't have any cognitive dysfunction yet. It was just like I couldn't exercise. And so I said, I'm gonna design a new climbing shoe. And so I, like from the scratch, made this prototype climbing shoe. And I was going full steam ahead with this. I'm like, I'm gonna be a cobbler. I'm gonna start a shoe company. And like, you know, Honnold's worn this thing. He's like, yeah, this fits really well. This seems like a good shoe. Yeah, you know, still like a little protective of my intellectual property. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I got way into it. But then, you know, I became too sick to really do anything. But uh, yeah, a friend of mine in, in Salt Lake involved with like designing shoes for 510 looked at it and he's like, yeah, you're, you're not too far off. 
I've got a tote filled with expensive Italian suede for like the climbing shoe leather. It's really um, stiff. It's yes. like a TC Pro moccasin almost. Is that you couldn't have said it better. It's the it's the love child of a TC Pro and a and a mock. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't give give away too much. Like I haven't ever posted. Mason has his good days and bad ones. And on the better days, he fills that time with tinkering away, indulging in his affection for loose leaf tea and aromatic incense, reading more frequently, and small bursts of music making. This is Mason playing, by the way. Mason has endured these last five years living with ME-CFS, both grateful for his memories and grieving the loss of his once abled body. He's also been feeling a lot better, though still debilitated by his condition. Thanks to surgery, Mason's symptoms have become much less severe. I despise coffee. It's complicated. <laughs> I love coffee. I love the taste of it, but it's always made me feel like shit. I've never tolerated it, but I would all I would drink a lot of it because I was like, well, this is just I guess this is how you're supposed to feel. But I I would love drinking it because it tastes so good. And when people talk about how good coffee makes them feel, you know, it's something that I've never had access to and certainly now I can't do any caffeine and so I'm like really bitter about it because it's something I'm not a part of so I'm like really bitter about coffee I'm like fucking coffee and people getting up in the morning and drinking something that makes them feel good damn it like uh, I'm sure you know Matt Siegel and he's a good friend and he has his coffee company Alpine Start and like I follow them on Instagram because he's my buddy and but they're you know they'll be like how are you drinking your coffee this morning? I'm like, fuck you, I'm not drinking any goddamn coffee, damn it. <laughs> no, I was like 100% weed person before I got sick. But then as soon as I was sick, I stopped tolerating it and it, it also made me feel horrible. And so I you know, pretty much quit cold turkey. Do you miss it? Fuck yeah. I mean, I did a funny thing. I was sitting out on my porch the other night and I was kind of feeling okay and enjoying being out there. And I'm like, man, healthy Mason would have rolled up a little doobie right now and sparked it up. And I pantomimed, just sitting there by myself, pantomimed rolling a joint and lighting it up. And it was, uh, I was like, actually, that sort of, that meditative process was a lot of what I enjoyed about it. Just thought that was kind of a funny moment. Yeah, I took a big drag. Like, yeah, it's all good. It's all gonna be okay. <laughs>
but no, I don't get FOMO. I think that I'm too far, I've like overshot that sort of place. Like if I was healthy and all I couldn't do was climb, but what I miss is like feeling good. That's what I miss is feeling good and alive. Just the ability to go walk outside and say, I'm gonna walk down to the river. It's a mile away. I'm gonna walk down there and it's gonna be amazing. Or ride my bike or just socialize more, you know, do something on a whim, say, oh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go out here and spend a night and go explore this area for new climbs. That was like my favorite thing to do, was exploring. Try to find that new crack. I just loved exploring and turning the corner and seeing new rocks and <laughs> I loved that. But yeah, I don't really have FOMO because I couldn't do that right now. I, I have, my symptoms are too bad. I can't exert myself. Um, yeah, I definitely remember experiencing FOMO as a healthy person. But actually, yeah, like when I think back on amazing days that I had, um, yeah, I had a thought, what was I gonna try to say? Um, and we're starting to get into brain disintegration mode. Um, Oh, yeah, like I was, I saw a picture of some people hanging out in Squamish, and I was thinking about climbing in Squamish. And climbing in Squamish in the summer, I think, was probably like some of just the most carefree, fun times I've ever had. And when I think back, it was like hanging out in the campground, going into town, going to the lake, rest days. Like, oh yeah, I mean, I guess I climbed Cobra Crack that one time. But like that doesn't even, that's not even like top 10 days of like climbing in Squamish, riding around on, <laughs> with Will Stanhope on his little moped. <laughs> uh, just like that shit, that was, that was great. There was one moment of FOMO in my illness that's sort of poignant, I think. This all started in Yosemite um, Nick Barry and I were climbing on Leaning Tower and we had an amazing day of climbing. We both sent the crux pitch, the 13D crux pitch on Leaning Tower. By the time I got back down to my car, it was sort of a slow descent, but I was sick. And I sort of hung around the valley for a few days and wasn't getting better at all. So I remember I finally got in my van and I left. And as I was pulling past El Cat Meadow, I remember seeing all my friends were there right then. Um, and just pulling out and being like, damn, like I'm, I wanna hang out with my friends right now. I wanna be hanging out in the meadow with everybody and here I am having to bail because I'm sick. This is awful. This <laughs> is actually kind of making me emotional thinking about that back then. It was like, that was the moment that I kind of left that world. That was it. Yeah, like climbing was in the rear view mirror from there on out. And you know, I, I think I should probably mention that probably part of the reason that I'm okay with not climbing is that I did get to live all my climbing dreams. You know, I got to establish the craziest crack climb I've ever seen in the Utah desert. I got to do a, a new free route on El Cap with Brad um, and go on cool trips to Venezuela, the, the Yukon, French Polynesia. I went to Patagonia a couple times. I got to do all that. And, uh, you know, if this had started when I was younger, I think it would be much different to not have gotten to live all those dreams. Uh, 
I guess like if I could solve this illness and like literally find a cure, which is like something that I put a little bit of energy into is like trying to figure out, you know, at least my own situation, obviously, because I want to get better. That's like my goal is to cure a disease that has ruined the lives of millions of people. And it's like, well, the medical community has failed to, to do this in, you know, a hundred years of research. So that's lofty, but like, you know what? I looked up El Cap and I said, no one's climbed up that way and I'm gonna climb up that way. And I did it. Come on. Come on, Mason. Good. Come on. Come on, Mason. Come on. Come on. Come on. Oh, Jesus. Christ in heaven, what am I doing? <laughs> nice job. That was fucking rad. <laughs> okay, so we're at the Washoe Boulders. Um, and I'm kind of feeling inspired, so I think I'm gonna try to do this climb. It's by far the most extreme thing that I've attempted the past few years, so uh, I don't know if I'm gonna get to the top, but um, here goes nothing. Come back, tour starts now. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. A huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. And a big thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for supporting this podcast and the messages that we share. Gnarly Nutrition supports a community of vulnerability and equality and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. And to Otsun, innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance. And thanks to Patagonia, not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. 